I leave for 10 minutes and you guys destroy the house. <laughs> Perhaps you've heard those words before. Perhaps you've yelled them yourself. If so, you can relate to Nehemiah today. As we study the last chapter of his memoir, the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to throw in the book of Malachi just as a bonus. Now, we don't know for sure that Malachi was written at the same time as Nehemiah, but it sure looks that way. So we're going to work under this assumption that Malachi is written to the people of Jerusalem during a time when Nehemiah, the governor, is absent, having returned to Persia to serve King Artaxerxes in his court. And what we see is that while dad is away, the kids will play. And Malachi, the prophet Malachi, warns the people of Jerusalem, your actions will have consequences. So as we prepare to hear this story, let us pray. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and your glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Perhaps you recall from a couple weeks ago that Nehemiah was an official in the court of King Artaxerxes, the ruler of the Persian Empire, the world empire at that time. And in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah had learned that his fellow Jews back in Jerusalem were in distress. And so he asked the king for a leave of absence so that he could go and help rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls and the city. And King Artaxerxes gladly granted his request, but the king did want to know when Nehemiah would return and resume his royal duties. So we know that Nehemiah did have to make that uh, two-month return journey back to the Persian court at some point. Perhaps he made that journey many times during his life. But when we come to Nehemiah chapter 13, we do learn that in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah was back in Persia. And while Nehemiah was away, things had been going downhill in Jerusalem. Now we've already mentioned how Nehemiah often acts as a new Moses for Israel. And here in this story, we're reminded of the time Moses ascended Mount Sinai to hear from the Lord. And while Moses was atop the mountain for 40 days, the sons of Israel got restless and they fell into idolatry. They forged and then began to worship a golden calf in God's place. Well, in the same way here, Nehemiah, he's gone up to Persia, up to the great king to hear his word and to follow his laws. But while Nehemiah is away, the Jews of Jerusalem quickly fall into new idolatry. Now, Nehemiah is not present in Jerusalem. He's not there to confront and correct the people of Jerusalem. But the prophet Malachi is. And so we'll be looking at his prophecy today. It's the last book in our Old Testament. And it begins this way. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by the hand of Malachi. Now, Malachi means my messenger. He's the messenger of God. He brings God's words of warning to wayward Israel. 
One of the reasons that we think Malachi is written at this time is because his description of what's going on in Israel and the problems that they're causing is very similar to the one we get in Nehemiah chapter 13. So they seem to be confronting the same issues. And so this morning we'll track primarily with Malachi and his prophecy hitting the highlights of his book, but we're going to bring in Nehemiah chapter 13 at times too, so just be aware of that. All right, so what in the world is going on in Jerusalem while Nehemiah is away? The first problem Malachi addresses is Israel's worship. Now remember, Jesus hasn't come yet. If Israelites are going to do the things that we do in our worship service, uh, if they're going to approach God and receive his forgiveness and offer themselves to him and feast in his presence, if an Israelite wanted to do those things, they did it through animal sacrifice, through offerings brought near to God at the temple and cooked on his altar as a meal for him. But those animals had to be good animals, clean animals, unblemished animals. And Malachi says to the priests of Israel, what are you guys doing? The animals that you are bringing to God are blind and lame and sick. Is that not evil? In Malachi chapter 1 verse 9 he says, With such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of you? And then God says in verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So God's saying it would actually be better if you were to shut the temple doors and shut this whole thing down and offer nothing than to show such disregard for me by bringing these blemished offerings. So while Nehemiah is away, the priests of Israel are allowing the worship of God to be polluted. They are not honoring God. They are offending God. Now, Nehemiah tells us that at this time, the high priest, Eliashib, had actually lent out a room in the temple to a man named Tobiah, who was an Ammonite. He wasn't even Jewish. He's one of the rulers of the region at this time. And so the high priest violates the sanctity of God's house and the law of Moses. The high priest did that. Malachi goes on to rebuke the priests not only for polluting the altar and polluting God's house, but for failing to teach the truth. Malachi 2.7 For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger, the Malach, of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. My, uh, Malachi is laying into the priests of Jerusalem here that they should know better. They are the messengers God has ordained to ensure that the sacrifices are pure, that the laws are followed, to ensure that his word is being taught to the people. But instead, the priests are polluting God's table, and their teaching is leading the people astray. Next, Malachi sets his sights on marriage covenants. And the first thing he calls out is Israel as a whole. Because remember, Israel as a whole is supposed to be God's bride. But they have not been faithful to him. Malachi 2, verse 11. Judah has been faithless. 
and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now this is common uh, imagery in the prophets, that Israel's idolatry is pictured as adultery. They have broken covenant with their God, and they have chased after foreign gods. Their idolatry is adultery. And it's not surprising then that if the leaders of Israel have been unfaithful in their covenant with God, they have also violated their earthly marriage covenants. Malachi 2.14 The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And Nehemiah 13 confirms that there were problems with intermarriage in Jerusalem. Jewish men had disobeyed the law of Moses by marrying women from Philistia and Ammon and Moab, the enemies of God's people. Nehemiah says half their children couldn't even speak the language of Judah. How could they hope to hear and obey the word of the Lord? As it often was in the past, the Jews of Nehemiah and Malachi's day were not faithful in their marriages, whether to their wives or to their God. Their adultery was idolatry, and their idolatry was adultery. Finally, Malachi rebukes Israel because they had robbed God. They have robbed God. In Malachi 3, verse 8, he portrays the Israelites asking God, well, how have we robbed you? And God answers, in your tithes and contributions. We know that all things belong to God. And he requires Israel to return only a tenth to him, a tithe. But Israel has not been doing that. They have not been making offerings to the temple. Now, what were those offerings? What was that tithe used for? Do you remember? They were to provide for the people who performed the temple services, the Levites. And they were also used for the maintenance of the temple and keeping it going. And they were used to feed the poor and the vulnerable of the community. But Israel's not tithing, so none of that is happening. And Nehemiah confirms Malachi's charge. In Nehemiah 13.10, he says... I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. They weren't being paid for their temple service, so they had to find other ways to support their family, and so they go back to the fields, and consequently, no one is performing the service of the temple. God is not being honored and worshipped. And so the Israelites were robbing God. Now, Malachi doesn't necessarily talk about this, but Nehemiah adds to the list that the Jews were violating the Sabbath. And this relates, of course, to the fourth commandment given to Moses. God told the Israelites, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. But Nehemiah finds out that the people of Judah are spending their Saturdays treading the wine presses and harvesting grain and basically setting up a shopping mall at the gates of the city. 
Israel is profaning the Sabbath. So let's kind of recap this situation in Judah. While Nehemiah is away in Persia, they're polluting the worship of God. They are polluting the house of God. They are violating their marriage covenants. They are failing to tithe, and they are profaning the Sabbath. Now, by my count, they're breaking at least eight of the Ten Commandments right there, right? But don't worry, there's more. <laughs> now, how do you think Nehemiah feels when he learns what's been happening in his absence? <sighs> I just got this place cleaned up. I turn my back for one minute, and it's pandemonium. What is wrong with you people? And the prophet Malachi warns the people of Jerusalem, when dad comes back, you are going to be in trouble. And we see that in this famous passage from Malachi 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Yahweh is coming to town. He knows if you've been bad or good. And let's be honest, it's pretty much just bad. Pretty much just bad. Behold, he is coming, says Malachi. Are you ready for his coming? How should Israel respond to this? Malachi continues, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. So this is the image that Malachi uses, the refining of precious metals. Now it's a destructive process, white-hot fire that burns away the dross, the pollution, the corruption, the impurities. But this fire has a redemptive goal. It brings forth something pure and radiant and glorious on the other side. And so Malachi continues, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. No more of these polluted offerings which offend God, but pure offerings served by pure priests. Offerings which are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. When the Lord comes to Israel, he comes to refine and to purify a people for his own possession. Malachi 3.5 Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely. Oh, there's the ninth commandment against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I'm pretty sure that's the seventh commandment too. You shall not murder. So I think they're ten for ten now, right? It's a fullness of sin we see in the book of Malachi. Israel has broken all of God's commandments. 
But we see the double-edged nature of God's judgment here, too. We, we've talked about this many times. On the day of the Lord, when God comes to judge his people, it is always two-sided. It is always both a condemnation and a deliverance. He comes to destroy the wicked, but he comes to save the faithful. And so we see these two sides of the Lord's coming clearly in this other well-known passage, Malachi 4, verse 1. 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. God comes to judge. Verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall, go out, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, he is coming, says Malachi. He comes as a consuming fire. And he comes as the sun of righteousness with healing in its wings. Which light and which heat will you taste? Now we see many days of the Lord throughout the scriptures. There are many times when God comes to his people to both judge and to deliver. And it may be that one fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy was when God's appointed leader, Nehemiah, returned to Jerusalem. Maybe Nehemiah, the new Moses, is that messenger of the covenant that Malachi describes. Because Nehemiah 13 tells us that when Nehemiah came home, he got busy cleaning house. He went to the temple and he threw Tobiah the Ammonite and all his furniture out on the lawn. And he put God's vessels back where they belonged. He called all of Judah to stop robbing God and to bring in their tithes. And he appointed responsible men to collect and to distribute those tithes according to God's law. On Friday night, he shut the gates of the city and he set guards that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And he kicked out all who bought and sold on the Sabbath. Remind you of anybody else? And he purified the Levites and he charged them to guard the Sabbath. The Jews who had married foreign women and had not taught their children the language of Judah, Nehemiah confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. That's not very pleasant. But it's better than being cast into the fire. Nehemiah made them swear an oath to stop giving their sons and daughters to unbelievers. And so Nehemiah ends his memoir, the book of Nehemiah, with these words. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the offerings. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Now that sounds a lot like what Malachi promised concerning the day of the Lord, cleansing the temple, purifying the priests, preserving marital faithfulness, collecting the tithe, establishing right worship. 
Nehemiah served as that purifying and refining fire of God, judgment for the wicked, salvation for the faithful, that the name of God might be glorified in Jerusalem and in God's people. Perhaps he was even the near fulfillment of the prophecies of Malachi, the messenger of the covenant preparing the way for the Lord. Now, regardless, the Jewish people continued to read the prophecy of Malachi long after Nehemiah and his generation had passed away. They continued to look for another messenger of the Lord, and they continued to look for a future day of the Lord's coming. Malachi had closed his prophecy with this obscure but intriguing promise. Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It's an interesting promise. Elijah was long dead, but Malachi promises that God will send an Elijah to prepare his way. Perhaps Malachi himself served as this Elijah-like figure preparing the way for the return of Nehemiah to set Jerusalem to rights. But then much later, we come to the Gospel of Luke. And Luke tells us of a heaven-sent interpreter of this prophecy, the angel who appears to Zechariah the priest. And the angel tells him of the son that will be miraculously born to he and his aging wife Elizabeth, the son we know as John the Baptist. And the angel says of John, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the, uh, to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's quoting Malachi 4. Now if John the Baptist is... The Elijah of Malachi 4, if John is the messenger sent to prepare the way for the great and awesome day of the Lord, who is the coming Lord for whom John prepares? It is, of course, our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And so we can see Jesus as the greater Nehemiah. God's chosen leader who comes down from the holy mountain, who comes down from the kingly palace. He comes to Israel lost in their idolatry. Every commandment of the Lord shattered at their feet. He comes to set things right. Jesus is the Lord who suddenly comes to his temple. Jesus is the messenger of the covenant in whom the Father delights. Behold, he is coming. This is what we celebrate at Advent, the coming of the Lord. We celebrate his first advent, his birth in Bethlehem. We prepare for his second advent, his coming at the end of days. We say with Malachi, behold, he is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? For Jesus certainly comes as the living fire of God. Elijah John himself, like some raw beast in his camel hair cloak and uncut beard, bug eater, honey drinker, crying out like a madman in the wilderness, he says, 
He who is coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He sounds a lot like Malachi. And in fulfillment of John's prophecy, Jesus comes bringing fire. He comes to cleanse and to purge from sin. And it's a painful process. It was more painful for him. For he himself was baptized with fire on the cross. And there he took our sin upon himself. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus bore the burning wrath of God's judgment in our place so that we wouldn't have to. And on the cross, our sin was burned away as dross from silver. Our greater Nehemiah came to town and dealt with sin and death once and for all. And because of his sacrifice, we who put our trust in him will be spared the eternal fire of God's wrath at Christ's second advent. But in this middle time between the first and second advents of Christ, we still deal with sin. We are still at war with our own sin. Like Israel, we often think the judge is preoccupied. He's away on business. Everyone can do what is right in his own eyes. As Israel polluted the altar with blemished animals, so we fail to give God what is rightfully his. We fail to give ourselves to him. We fail to offer him our labor and the fruit of our labor. As Israel violated their marriage covenant, so we often chase after idols of our own. Money or power or prestige or security. These are the other lovers we chase while the bridegroom is away. We live as if the Lord is not coming. But because of his burning love for us, Jesus still comes for us. He comes to us every day, especially when we gather together in his name as we are doing right now. He comes to us to purify, to sanctify us even in the present. By His Spirit, He convicts us of sin. He teaches us to repent. He grants us His forgiveness. He teaches us to amend our ways and live for Him. Even now, the refiner is coming suddenly to His temple. And He is purifying His priestly people that we might serve Him faithfully, that we might bring honor to His name in the world. Jesus, our greater Nehemiah, comes as the fire of God to purify his people. But remember, the coming of the Lord always has two sides. Just as he comes in fire, so he comes in light. Just as he comes to refine, so he comes to resurrect. He comes with winnowing fork and throws the shaft into the fire, but he also comes to gather the wheat safely into his barn. He comes burning like an oven for the arrogant and all evildoers, but he comes as the sun of righteousness with healing in its wings for those who fear his name. At such a remarkable image, the sun of righteousness with healing in its wings, healing in its rays, healing in its beams. On these cold winter days, don't you love it when the sun peeks through the clouds for a moment and you feel its warmth getting right into your skin? If you put your trust in Jesus, that is how his coming will be for you. 
Malachi says, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Have you ever seen young calves or, or horses leaping, loping around the pasture, legs so long they don't know what to do with them? They leap and bound for the sheer joy of it. The children are the same way, aren't they? For some of us, it's hard to imagine leaping at all. But when Christ comes, you will be healed. You will be filled with life, filled with joy. You will be resurrected and you will shine in the reflected radiance of the sun. Behold, he is coming. Prepare his way. Prepare his way in your own heart. Prepare his way in repentance and forgiveness. Prepare his way in worship and living that honors him. And when he comes, sing, Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Let's pray. Son of God, Son of Righteousness, come quickly. We know that you come as judge to purge from sin and to purify your priestly people. Burn away the sin in our lives. Make us holy and acceptable through your precious blood. And teach us to prepare your way in our hearts and in our world. Raise us up. Bring light and life. Bring healing in your wings. Bring resurrection. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.